Chapter One of Emily Fox Seton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Caroline Driggs. Emily Fox Seton being the making of a marchioness and the methods of Lady Walderhurst by Frances Hodgson Burnett. Chapter One. When Miss Fox Seton descended from the Tuppany bus as it drew up, she gathered her trim tailor-made skirt about her with neatness and decorum, being well used to getting in and out of Tuppany buses and to making her way across muddy London streets. A woman whose tailor-made suit must last two or three years soon learns how to protect it from splashes and how to aid it to retain the freshness of its folds. During her trudging about this morning in the wet, Emily Fox Seton had been very careful and in fact was returning to Mortimer Street as unspotted as she had left it. She had been thinking a good deal about her dress, this particular faithful one which she had already worn through a twelve-month. Skirts had made one of their appalling changes, and as she walked down Regent Street and Bond Street, she had stopped at the windows of more than one shop bearing the sign, Ladies' Tailor and Habit Maker, and had looked at the tautly attired, preternaturally slim models, her large, honest, hazel eyes wearing an anxious expression. She was trying to discover where seams were to be placed, and how gathers were to be hung, or if there were to be gathers at all, or if one had to be bereft of every seam in a style so unrelenting as to forbid the possibility of the honest and semi-penniless struggling with the problem of remodelling last season's skirt at all. As it is only quite an ordinary brown, she had murmured to herself, I might be able to buy a yard or so to match it, and I might be able to join the gore near the pleats at the back so that it would not be seen. She quite beamed as she reached the happy conclusion. She was such a simple, normal-minded creature that it took but little to brighten the aspect of her life for her and to cause her to break into her good-natured, childlike smile. A little kindness from anyone, a little pleasure or a little comfort, made her glow with nice-tempered enjoyment. As she got out of the bus and picked up her rough brown skirt, prepared to tramp bravely through the mud of Mortimer Street to her lodgings, she was positively radiant. It was not only her smile which was childlike. Her face itself was childlike for a woman of her age and size. She was thirty-four and a well-set-up creature, with fine square shoulders and a long small waist and good hips. She was a big woman, but carried herself well, and having solved the problem of obtaining, through marvels of energy and management, one good dress a year, wore it so well and changed her old ones so dexterously that she always looked rather smartly dressed. She had nice round fresh cheeks and nice big honest eyes, plenty of mouse-brown hair and a short straight nose. She was striking and well-bred looking and her plenitude of good-natured interest in everybody and her pleasure in everything out of which pleasure could be rested gave her big eyes a fresh look which made her seem rather like a nice overgrown girl than a mature woman whose life was a continuous struggle with the narrowest of mean fortunes. She was a woman of good blood and of good education, as the education of such women goes. She had few relatives, and none of them had any intention of burdening themselves with her pennilessness. They were people of excellent family, but had quite enough to do to keep their sons in the army or navy, and find husbands for their daughters. When Emily's mother had died, and her small annuity had died with her, none of them had wanted the care of a big raw-boned girl, 
and Emily had had the situation frankly explained to her. At eighteen, she had begun to work as assistant teacher in a small school. The year following, she had taken a place as nursery governess. Then she had been reading companion to an unpleasant old woman in Northumberland. The old woman had lived in the country, and her relatives had hovered over her like vultures awaiting her decease. The household had been gloomy and gruesome enough to have driven into melancholy madness any girl not of the sanest and most matter-of-fact temperament. Emily Fox Seaton had endured it with an unfailing good nature, which at last had actually awakened in the breast of her mistress a ray of human feeling. When the old woman at length died, and Emily was to be turned out into the world, it was revealed that she had been left a legacy of a few hundred pounds, and a letter containing some rather practical, if harshly expressed, advice. "'Go back to London,' Mrs. Maytham had written in her feeble, crabbed hand. "'You are not clever enough to do anything remarkable in the way of earning your living, but you are so good-natured that you can make yourself useful to a lot of helpless creatures who will pay you a trifle for looking after them and the affairs they are too lazy or too foolish to manage for themselves. You might get on to one of the second-class fashion papers to answer ridiculous questions about housekeeping or wallpapers or freckles. You know the kind of thing I mean. You might write notes or do accounts and shopping for some lazy woman. You are a practical, honest creature, and you have good manners. I have often thought that you had just the kind of commonplace gifts that a host of commonplace people want to find at their service. An old servant of mine who lives in Mortimer Street would probably give you cheap, decent lodgings and behave well to you for my sake. She has reason to be fond of me. Tell her I sent you to her and that she must take you in for ten shillings a week. Emily wept for gratitude and ever afterward enthroned old Mrs. Maytham on an altar as a princely and sainted benefactor, though after she had invested her legacy she got only twenty pounds a year from it. It was so kind of her she used to say with heartfelt humbleness of spirit. I never dreamed of her doing such a generous thing. I hadn't a shadow of a claim upon her, not a shadow. It was her way to express her honest emotions with emphasis which italicized, as it were, her outpourings of pleasure or appreciation. She returned to London and presented herself to the ex-serving woman. Mrs. Cupp had indeed reason to remember her mistress gratefully. At a time when youth and indiscreet affection had betrayed her disastrously, she had been saved from open disgrace and taken care of by Mrs. Maytham. The old lady, who had then been a vigorous, sharp-tongued, middle-aged woman, had made the soldier lover marry his despairing sweetheart, and when he had promptly drunk himself to death, she had set her up in a lodging-house which had thriven and enabled her to support herself and her daughter decently. In the second story of her respectable dingy house there was a small room which she went to some trouble to furnish up for her dead mistress's friend. It was made into a bed-sitting room with the aid of a cot, which Emily herself bought and disguised decently as a couch during the daytime, by means of a red and blue Como blanket. The one window of the room looked out upon a black little back yard and a sooty wall on which thin cats crept stealthily or sat and mournfully gazed at fate. The Como rug played a large part in the decoration of the apartment. One of them, with a piece of tape run through a hem, hung over the door in the character of a portiere. Another covered a corner which was Miss Fox Seaton's sole wardrobe. As she began to get work, the cheerful, aspiring creature bought herself a Kensington carpet square, as red as Kensington art would permit it to be. She covered her chairs with turkey-red cotton, frilling them round the seats. Over her cheap white muslin curtains, 
eight and eleven a pair at Robson's, she hung turkey-red draperies. She bought a cheap cushion at one of Liberty's sales, and some bits of tuppenny halfpenny art china for her narrow mantelpiece. A lacquered tea-tray and a tea-set of a single cup and saucer, a plate and a teapot, made her feel herself almost sumptuous. After a day spent in trudging about in the wet or cold of the streets, doing other people's shopping, or searching for dressmakers or servants' characters for her patrons, she used to think of her bed-sitting room with joyful anticipation. Mrs. Cupp always had a bright fire glowing in her tiny grate when she came in, and when her lamp was lighted under its homemade shade of crimson Japanese paper, its cheerful air, combining itself with the singing of her little fat black kettle on the hob, seemed absolute luxury to a tired, damp woman. Mrs. Cupp and Jane Cupp were very kind and attentive to her. No one who lived in the same house with her could have helped liking her. She gave so little trouble and was so expansively pleased by any attention that the Cups, who were sometimes rather bullied and snubbed by the professionals who generally occupied their other rooms, quite loved her. Sometimes the professionals, extremely smart ladies and gentlemen who did turns at the balls or played small parts at theatres, were irregular in their payments or went away leaving bills behind them. But Miss Fox Seaton's payments were as regular as Saturday night. And in fact, there had been times when, luck being against her, Emily had gone extremely hungry during a whole week, rather than buy her lunches at the ladies' tea shops with the money that would pay her rent. In the honest minds of the cups, she had become a sort of possession, of which they were proud. She seemed to bring into their dingy lodging-house a touch of the great world, that world whose people lived in Mayfair and had country houses where they entertained parties for the shooting and the hunting and in which also existed the maids and matrons who on cold spring mornings sat amid billows of satin and tulle and lace, surrounded with nodding plumes, waiting, shivering for hours in their carriages, that they might at last enter Buckingham Palace and be admitted to the drawing-room. Mrs. Cupp knew that Miss Fox Seaton was well-connected. She knew that she possessed an aunt with a title, though her ladyship never took the slightest notice of her niece. Jane Cupp took modern society, and now and then had the pleasure of reading aloud to her young man little incidents concerning some castle or manor in which Miss Fox Seaton's aunt, Lady Malfrey, was staying with earls and special favourites of the princes. Jane also knew that Miss Fox Seaton occasionally sent letters addressed to the Right Honourable the Countess of So-and-so, and received replies stamped with coronets. Once even a letter had arrived adorned with strawberry leaves, an incident which Mrs. Cupp and Jane had discussed with deep interest over their hot-buttered toast and tea. Emily Fox Seaton, however, was far from making any professions of grandeur. As time went on, she had become fond enough of the Cups to be quite frank with them about her connections with these grand people. The Countess had heard from a friend that Miss Fox Seaton had once found her an excellent governess, and she had commissioned her to find for her a reliable young lady's serving-maid, she had done some secretarial work for a charity of which the Duchess was patroness. In fact, these people knew her only as a well-bred woman who, for a modest remuneration, would make herself extremely useful in numberless practical ways. She knew much more of them than they knew of her, and in her affectionate admiration for those who treated her with human kindness, sometimes spoke to Mrs. Cupp or Jane of their beauty or charity with a very nice ingenuous feeling. Naturally, some of her patrons grew fond of her, and as she was a fine, handsome young woman, with a perfectly correct bearing, they gave her little pleasures, 
inviting her to tea or luncheon or taking her to the theatre. Her enjoyment of these things was so frank and grateful that the Cups counted them among their own joys. Jane Cupp, who knew something of dressmaking, felt it a brilliant thing to be called upon to renovate an old dress or help in the making of a new one for some festivity. The Cups thought their tall, well-built lodger something of a beauty, and when they had helped her to dress for the evening, bearing her fine, big, white neck and arms, and adorning her thick braids of hair with some sparkling, trembling ornaments, after putting her in her four-wheeled cab, they used to go back to their kitchen and talk about her, and wonder that some gentleman who wanted a handsome, stylish woman at the head of his table did not lay himself and his fortune at her feet. In the photograph shops in Regent Street, you see many a lady in a coronet that hasn't got half the good looks she has, Mrs. Cupp remarked frequently. She's got a nice complexion and a fine head of air, and, if you ask me, she's got as nice a pair of clear eyes as a lady could have. Then look at her figure, her neck and her waist. That kind of big, long throat of hers would set off rows of pearls or diamonds beautiful. She's a lady born, too, for all her simple, everyday way. And she's a sweet creature, if ever there was one, for kind-heartedness and good-nature are never saw her equal. Miss Fox Seaton had middle-class patrons as well as noble ones. In fact, those of the middle class were far more numerous than the Duchess's, so it had been possible for her to do more than one good turn for the Cup household. She had got sewing and made a veil in Bloomsbury for Jane Cup many a time, and Mrs. Cup's dining-room floor had been occupied for years by a young man Emily had been able to recommend. Her own appreciation of good turns made her eager to do them for others. She never let slip a chance to help anyone in any way. It was a good-natured thing done by one of her patrons who liked her, which made her so radiant as she walked through the mud this morning. She was inordinately fond of the country, and having had what she called a bad winter, she had not seen the remotest chance of getting out of town at all during the summer months. The weather was beginning to be unusually hot, and her small red room which seemed so cosy in winter, was shut in by a high wall from all chance of breezes. Occasionally she lay and panted a little in her cot, and felt that when all the private omnibuses, loaded with trunks and servants, had rattled away and deposited their burdens at the various stations, life in town would be rather lonely. Everyone she knew would have gone somewhere, and Mortimer Street in August was a melancholy thing, and Lady Maria had actually invited her to Mallow, what a piece of good fortune! What an extraordinary piece of kindness! She did not know what a source of entertainment she was to Lady Maria, and how the shrewd, worldly old thing liked her. Lady Maria Bain was the cleverest, sharpest-tongued, smartest old woman in London. She knew everybody, and had done everything in her youth, a good many things not considered highly proper. A certain royal duke had been much pleased with her, and people had said some very nasty things about it. But this had not hurt Lady Maria. She knew how to say nasty things herself, and as she said them wittily, they were usually listened to and repeated. Emily Fox Seaton had gone to her first to write notes for an hour every evening. She had sent, declined, and accepted invitations, and put off charities and dull people. She wrote a fine, dashing hand, and had a matter-of-fact intelligence and knowledge of things. Lady Maria began to depend on her, and to find that she could be sent on errands, and depended on to do a number of things. Consequently, she was often at South Audley Street, and once when Lady Maria was suddenly taken ill, and was horribly frightened about herself, Emily was such a comfort to her that she kept her for three weeks. The creature is so cheerful, and perfectly free from vice, that she's a relief. 
her ladyship said to her nephew afterward. So many women are affected cats. She'll go out and buy you a box of pills or a porous plaster, but at the same time she has a kind of simplicity and freedom from spites and envies which might be the natural thing for a princess. So it happened that occasionally Emily put on her best dress and most carefully built hat and went to South Audley Street to tea. Sometimes she had previously gone in buses to some remote place in the city to buy a special tea of which there had been rumours. She met some very smart people, and rarely any stupid ones, Lady Maria being encased in a perfect frank armour of good-humoured selfishness, which would have been capable of burning dullness at the stake. "'I won't have dull people,' she used to say. "'I'm dull myself.' When Emily Fox Seaton went to her on the morning in which this story opens, she found her consulting her visiting book and making lists. "'I'm arranging my parties for Mallow,' she said rather crossly. "'How tiresome it is!' The people one wants at the same time are always nailed to the opposite ends of the earth, and then things are found out about people, and one can't have them till it's blown over. Those ridiculous Dexters. They were the nicest possible pair, both of them good-looking, and both of them ready to flirt with anybody. But there was too much flirting, I suppose. Good heavens, if I couldn't have a scandal and keep it quiet, I wouldn't have a scandal at all. Come and help me, Emily. Emily sat down beside her. "'You see, it's my early August party,' said her ladyship, rubbing her delicate little old nose with her pencil. "'And Walderhurst is coming to me. It always amuses me to have Walderhurst. The moment a man like that comes into a room, the women begin to frisk about and swim and languish, except those who try to get up interesting conversations they think likely to attract his attention. They all think it is possible that he may marry them. If he were a Mormon, he might have marchionesses of Walderhurst of all shapes and sizes.' "'I suppose,' said Emily, "'that he was very much in love with his first wife "'and will never marry again.' "'He wasn't in love with her any more than he was in love with his housemaid. "'He knew he must marry and thought it very annoying. "'As the child died, I believe he thinks it is his duty to marry again. "'But he hates it. "'He's rather dull and he can't bear women fussing about "'and wanting to be made love to.' "'They went over the visiting book and discussed people and dates seriously.' The list was made and the notes written before Emily left the house. It was not until she had got up and was buttoning her coat that Lady Maria bestowed her boon. "'Emily,' she said, "'I am going to ask you to Mallow on the second. I want you to help me to take care of people and keep them from boring me and one another, though I don't mind their boring one another half so much as I mind their boring me. I want to be able to go off and take my nap at any hour I choose. I will not entertain people.' What you can do is to lead them off to gather things or look at church towers. I hope you'll come. Emily Fox Seaton's face flushed rosily, and her eyes opened and sparkled. Oh, Lady Maria, you are kind, she said. You know how I should enjoy it. I have heard so much of Mallow. Everyone says it is so beautiful, and that there are no such gardens in England. They are good gardens. My husband was rather mad about roses. The best train for you to take is the 2.30 from Paddington. That will bring you to the court just in time for tea on the lawn. Emily could have kissed Lady Maria if they had been on the terms which lead people to make demonstrations of affection. But she would have been quite as likely to kiss the butler when he bent over her at dinner and murmured in dignified confidence, Port or sherry, miss? Bibsworth would have been no more astonished than Lady Maria would, and Bibsworth certainly would have expired of disgust and horror. She was so happy when she hailed the Tuppany bus that when she got into it her face was beaming with the delight which adds freshness and good looks to any woman. 
to think that such good luck had come to her to think of leaving her hot little room behind her and going as a guest to one of the most beautiful old houses in england how delightful it would be to live for a while quite naturally the life the fortunate people lived year after year to be a part of the beautiful order and picturesqueness and dignity of it to sleep in a lovely bedroom to be called in the morning by a perfect housemaid to have one's early tea served in a delicate cup and to listen as one drank it to the birds singing in the trees in the park she had an ingenuous appreciation of the simplest material joys and the fact that she would wear her nicest clothes every day and dress for dinner every evening was a delightful thing to reflect upon she got so much more out of life than most people though she was not aware of it she opened the front door of the house in mortimer street with her latch-key and went upstairs almost unconscious that the damp heat was dreadful she met jane cupp coming down and smiled at her happily jane she said if you are not busy i should like to have a little talk with you will you come into my room yes miss jane replied with her usual respectful lady's maid's air it was in truth jane's highest ambition to become some day maid to a great lady and she privately felt that her association with miss fox seaton was the best possible training she used to ask to be allowed to dress her when she went out, and had felt it a privilege to be permitted to do her hair. She helped Emily to remove her walking dress, and neatly folded away her gloves and veil. She knelt down before her as soon as she saw her seat herself to take off her muddy boots. "'Oh, thank you, Jane!' Emily exclaimed with her kind, italicized manner. "'That is good of you. I am tired, really. "'But such a nice thing has happened.' I have had such a delightful invitation for the first week in August. I'm sure you'll enjoy it, miss, said Jane. It's so hot in August. Lady Maria Bain has been kind enough to invite me to Mallow Court, explained Emily, smiling down at the cheap slipper Jane was putting on her large, well-shaped foot. She was built on a large scale, and her foot was of no Cinderella-like proportions. Oh, miss, exclaimed Jane, how beautiful! I was reading about Mallow in Modern Society the other day, and it said it was lovely, and her ladyship's parties were wonderful for smartness. The paragraph was about the Marquis of Walderhurst. He is Lady Maria's cousin, said Emily, and he will be there when I am. She was a friendly creature, and lived a life so really isolated from any ordinary companionship, that her simple little talks with Jane and Mrs. Cupp were a pleasure to her. The Cupps were neither gossiping nor intrusive, and she felt as if they were her friends. Once, when she had been ill for a week, she remembered suddenly realising that she had no intimates at all, and that if she died, Mrs. Cupps and Jane's would certainly be the last faces, and the only ones she would see. She had cried a little the night she thought of it, but then, as she told herself, she was feverish and weak, and it made her morbid. "'It was because of this invitation that I wanted to talk to you, Jane,' she went on. "'You see, we shall have to begin to contrive about dresses.' "'Yes, indeed, miss.' It's fortunate that the summer sales are on, isn't it? I saw some beautiful coloured linens yesterday. They were so cheap and they do make up so smart for the country. Then you've got your new tussaw with the blue collar and waistband. It does become you. I must say I think that a tussaw always looks fresh, said Emily. And I saw a really nice little tan toque, one of those soft straw ones for three and eleven. And just a twist of blue chiffon and a wing would make it look quite good. She was very clever with her fingers, and often did excellent things with a bit of chiffon and a wing, 
or a few yards of linen or muslin and a remnant of lace picked up at a sale she and jane spent quite a happy afternoon in careful united contemplation of the resources of her limited wardrobe they found that the brown skirt could be altered and with the addition of new reveres and collar and a jabot of string-coloured lace at the neck would look quite fresh a black net evening dress which a patron had good-naturedly given her the year before could be remodelled and touched up delightfully her fresh face and her square white shoulders were particularly adorned by black there was a white dress which could be sent to the cleaners and an old pink one whose superfluous breadths could be combined with lace and achieve wonders indeed i think i shall be very well off for dinner dresses said emily nobody expects me to change often every one knows if they notice at all she did not know she was humble-minded and of an angelic contentedness of spirit in fact she did not find herself interested in contemplation of her own qualities but in contemplation and admiration of those of other people it was necessary to provide emily fox seaton with food and lodging and such a wardrobe as would be just sufficient credit to her more fortunate acquaintances she worked hard to attain this modest end and was quite satisfied she found at the shops where the summer sales were being held a couple of cotton frocks to which her height and her small long waist gave an air of actual elegance a sailor hat with a smart ribbon and well-set quill a few new trifles for her neck a bow a silk handkerchief daringly knotted and some fresh gloves made her feel that she was sufficiently equipped during her last expedition to the sales she came upon a nice white duck coat and skirt which she contrived to buy as a present for jane it was necessary to count over the contents of her purse very carefully and to give up the purchase of a slim umbrella she wanted but she did it cheerfully if she had been a rich woman she would have given presents to every one she knew and it was actually a luxury to her to be able to do something for the cups who she always felt were continually giving her more than she paid for the care they took of her small room the fresh hot tea they managed to have ready when she came in the penny bunch of daffodils they sometimes put on her table were kindnesses and she was grateful for them i am very much obliged to you jane she said to the girl when she got into the four-wheeled cab on the eventful day of her journey to mallow i don't know what i should have done without you i'm sure i feel so smart in my dress now that you have altered it if lady maria's maid ever thinks of leaving her i am sure i could recommend you for her place End of chapter 1